A problem that many people suffer from is this idea that there's a one-to-one correspondence between what qualification um, one has and the job you get. This is an extremely unhelpful way of thinking. And in fact, when you look at um, data on uh, people's careers and how they move around, there's only a tiny group of people who get qualified in one area, build a career in it and stay there. And, and that's been the case forever. People talk about, you know, in the past, everyone had these fixed careers. That's actually not right. If you look at the data on labour mobility, uh, Australians are actually more mobile in the past than they are today. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today we're discussing ways of rationalising VET qualifications, possibly through clustering. Our vocational voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVR. Hello, Steve. John Buchanan, Business Information Systems Business School, the University of Sydney. Hello, John. Hi. And also David Morgan, CEO of Artibus Innovation. Hello, David. Hi, Steve. One of the ongoing themes within vocational education is the challenge of maintaining relevance between what is being taught and what is needed by industry, hence ensuring that students have solid job and career prospects. But what do we do when a qualification is deemed as inappropriate or requires a different context to be useful? Different nations have dealt with this differently and we'll touch on those, but I'd like to start this conversation by turning to you first, John Buchanan, and giving you an opportunity to share your message that resonated deeply with attendees of the No Frills Conference in 2020. It's the mindset shift between applying gap analysis when reviewing courses and qualifications and moving to one that equips students and VET providers to be equipped to adapt to the inevitability of change. John, could you expand on this for us to get us going in this conversation? Sure. Um, and look, thanks to NCVR for organising this event. I think uh, NCVR's got a, a great track record in fostering debate around these issues, and Australia's lucky to have an entity like this. Um, not many countries do. Thanks, John. Um, but to answer your special question, your, your direct question, I, I think um, a, a problem that many people suffer from is this idea that there's a one-to-one correspondence between what qualification um, one has and the job you get. This is an extremely unhelpful way of thinking. Uh, In some parts of the labour market, that is certainly the case. You know, if you've got a medical degree, you can get a job as a doctor. If you've got a nursing degree, you can get a job as a nurse. But there are very few parts of the labour market that actually operate like that. And in fact, when you look at um, data on uh, people's careers and how they move around, uh, there is very rarely, uh, there's only a tiny group of people who get qualified in one area, build a career in it and stay there. And, And that's been the case forever. People talk about, you know, in the past, everyone had these fixed careers. That's actually not right. If you look at the data on labour mobility, uh, Australians are actually more mobile in the past than they are today. And so the really interesting question then is what, how do qualifications help people uh, handle change? And um, I led a team of researchers that answered that question directly for the New South Wales Department of Education. We released the results in a paper called Preparing for the Best and Worst of Times. And in a nutshell, we argued 
that if people are to develop the capacity to adapt to change, they've got to have a, a core domain of expertise where they can learn how to reason, uh, how to cooperate with other people, how to show creativity. They've got to master those skills in a particular domain. That can be in maths, it can be in history, it can be in carpentry, it can be in landscape gardening, but they've got to have some home domain of expertise which they can then develop more general skills. And so when we're thinking about qualifications reform, we've got to get away from this idea that we look at, we do a projection into the future, we say we're going to need X number of um, data scientists. Currently, we've only got Y number of data scientists, so we've got to get, you know, uh, X minus Y number of data scientists created. If you look at something like data science, uh, uh, an area I've actually been doing a lot of work in lately, um, people with data science capabilities have computing skills, they have statistical skills, they have optimization math skills, and they have specific domain expertise in areas where the data science is applied. So you can create a data scientist out of any number of pathways. And so you don't just have, let's say, you don't say, let's just train X number or, you know, whatever it was, the, the, the gap was, I said before, you don't train the gap. You actually look at how do we give people underlying strengths which can then be adapted over time. Now, I could talk about this at length, but it's only a half-hour podcast, so I'll be brief. <laughs> Thank you, John. Um, Simon, uh, NCVR has published a, a wealth of material on the rationalisation of qualifications, including some comprehensive reviews of what's happening around the world. Just also to get us going in this conversation, could you perhaps outline uh, the two main options that seem to be most common from this research, the shelving of qualifications that have passed their expiration date and this concept of clustering? Yeah, so the research is titled Rationalising Vet Qualifications Selected International Approaches and it was a literature review of mainly European countries but also New Zealand. And you're right, there were two main methods emerged. One of them was just looking at the utilisation of the existing qualifications in those countries and a fairly blunt instrument which said, well, if there are no enrolments, we don't need the qualification or low enrolments. And to give you a sense of scale, uh, in New Zealand, they embarked upon this process using you know, underutilisation as the lens by which they rationalised them. And in 2011, they had the best part of 5,000 qualifications. And by the time they've gone through a fairly considered and collaborative and consultative process, they're now down to about 900. Um, by comparison, uh, just for context, in Australia, we have about 1,600 what we call in-use qualifications. But a bit of research we did a couple of years ago showed that 85% of them were concentrated in just 200 of them, and well over 300 had no enrolments, and quite a few more had very few enrolments. So that's one instrument, it's just to look at the utilisation of those qualifications, and of course if there's no one actually enrolling in them, you'd have to debate whether they need to exist. The other one that's probably emerged and closer to what John was talking about is the notion of clustering uh, qualifications for a range of occupations patients and because John and um, David will probably talk a bit more about that probably the only thing to add to that is um, um, we looked at a couple of European countries but the Netherlands gives some good insights um, they reduced their number of vet qualifications by 30 percent and they now have 180 qualifications but that cover what they call 490 profiles which is effectively occupations so you've got 
one qualification to many occupations. And in addition, they have these optional modules. I've got about a thousand of those. They're very similar to our units of competence. And they're the ones that you can add on to those foundational qualifications to give you the specialisations in any particular occupation. And uh, I must admit that one appealed, if nothing else, for its concise and structured approach to how you might rationalise qualifications. All right, David, I'd like to come to you now because uh, Artibus is a, a skilled service organisation. It's been commissioned by the Australian government to support the work of two industry reference committees. But I wonder, could we just take one of them, the property services, for example, and describe how you'd see a clustered qualification or pathway qualification working in property services? Um, sure. Perhaps I can quickly pick up on some of the other comments. So, so the contrast between construction and property services is something that both fascinates and frustrates us as an SSO. So um, John's comment about a one-to-one, co- a one-to-one correlation being unhelpful, I um, completely agree with him. But in, in an industry such as construction, where industrial frameworks and regulatory frameworks have been in place for a long time, um, that one-to-one correlation is actually very helpful. Um, <laughs> pro- the property services sector is is entirely different uh, to the construction industry, and, and perhaps I'll just give a little bit of context. The um, it's we use a term of, of bookending, so the property services industry bookends the construction industry, and it covers covers um, a vast array of sectors um, from building building design, surveying through the construction process to real estate, uh, security, pest management, waste management, so all of the ancillary services around it. But what is fascinating about it is it's actually um, parity in terms of size to the construction industry and is growing three times faster than the construction industry. And this fundamental challenge in this entire debate around rationalisation is is that its data structures don't fit the traditional ABS type models. So um, the we don't have uh, qualification occupation qualifications that are visible in the property services sector. So strata managers that manage you know, many millions of properties around Australia don't even exist. Um, the ABS still talks about architectural drafts people, which are now called building designers and have been for 20-odd years. <laughs> and so we, we have, from a policy setting, which we will lead, lead to, I'm sure, in this conversation, not having the right data sitting to inform evidence is a significant challenge. We have, uh, for the last three years, um, been, been pushing a clustered model or trying to get support for a clustered model that's, in, in a sense, as Simon, Simon put it, uh, a Dutch model of looking at a core set of skills in the property sector and then building lots of modules around it. There are two, two fundamental drivers in, in or there's a core skill set that everybody in the property services sector have, and that's around, around the auditing, auditing of a building against a framework. So, so we've coined this term a built environment auditor. And by that, I mean people in, in the property services sector design buildings to national codes of, of construction design codes. They um, assess buildings for fire safety against codes 
they assess sustainability, thermal performance, etc., against codes. So there's a common skill set around, a clustered skill set around um, the function of auditing and reading standards and codes. The second bit that's massively changing the industry is a concept termed from Singapore called integrated digital delivery. Um, so, so this is where, where the entire value chain of a building has a digital, a digital sort of backbone and all of the service providers in that industry through the construction process, design, construction, commissioning process, access the same digital, digital framework. It has other, other terms more commonly known in Australia as building information modelling, but it's effectively the delivery of information um, in, in a digital digital framework. So, so we have been putting um, a clustered model. What we want to do in the property services sector, we have completely redeveloped their, their training package. Um, thankfully, we don't have the issues of um, low enrolments or no, no enrolments in construction and property. They're numbers four and nine out of the training packages. So they sit with each with property has 128,000 enrolments a year construction double double that so we have a lot of people doing these these qualifications but the core structure of all of those jobs is morphing into a skill set around auditing massive digital digital um, delivery but then some very specialist skill sets so we we've been trying to create a a new uh, qualification model like the Dutch model that will will replace a lot of the other of the 50 or so other qualifications in in the property sector in time as as that one-to-one relationship of real estate become a real estate agent as that model disappears over time that's what we've been trying to do i can i can i can go on but let's let's let the conversation run perhaps <laughs> you use the term model and of course the transition to any model uh can take time and i note that in new zealand their transition took you know seven plus years uh john would you like to reflect on what david's been talking about and and share your thoughts on the patience that might be required uh, for the Australian system to um, uh, embrace this new perspective of looking at the vet sector. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, I think a real problem with um, so-called vocational vet reform in the English-speaking world is this idea that you can just pull a lever and get a change. Um, Hewitt Keeper, English researcher, uses the expression that the English vet system is the the biggest policy train set in the world and the assumption is you can just pick the tracks apart and reassemble them any way you like this has been incredibly damaging to the standing and the quality of the vet system in the uk in australia and in south africa and i think if we're interested in um, improving quality education and getting quality qualifications we've got to position ourselves for the long term and that's not just long-term, you know, time in itself, you know, if you, uh, time's not a healer on its own and equally time's not a solution on its own, it's time for what? And I think the other big thing we've got to do is build trust back in the system. If you don't have trust in the system, qualifications are worthless. Uh, the Australian system is a massively low trust system. It has high degrees of um, 
regulations and standard specification because there's no trust in the parties. And there's no trust for good reason because if you look at the scandals around vet fee help, the system has fundamental design flaws and people have tried to over-engineer the regulatory structure to do it. So um, the answer to your question is yes, it will take time, but time alone is not enough. We've got to put in place uh, a new regime which is built around trust. And in the work that Lisa Wheelerhan and Serena Hewitt and I did uh, earlier uh, this decade, form funded by the NCVR, is that we said if you're looking at qualifications reform, there are two dimensions. You've got to look at what the domains of expertise are, and that was a beautiful example we heard from the property services sector, you know, an underlying auditing capability and an integrated digital capability. Identifying those things is hard. You know, that's, that's both a research act, but it's also, and this is our second point, it's a, it's a cultural and small P political act. You've got to get all the people in the room who are concerned about this stuff, and they've got to, through a process of negotiation, reach agreement on what those core domains are. So, yes, New Zealand offers us an idea about the timescale, but I think um, we've also got to learn to, to have a new way of thinking about who we get in the room, how we involve them, and how we build trust in the quals. And if you do that, then I think you're, you're getting on a different path to getting a, a higher status vocational education system. Talking of different paths, I'd just like to take a different tack now to feed in while we have you all here. Uh, and look at some concepts that have been put forward by the Foundation for Young Australians. Now, in their report, The New Work Mindset, they highlight some insights and then seven clusters. And I'll just share a couple of thoughts here. Uh, Analysis of job ads between 2012 and 2015 showed demand for digital skills went up 212% over three years. Critical thinking, 158%. Uh, Creativity increased by 65%. And presentation skills, 25%. And they make the point that the new work order is here and that a national enterprise uh, skills and career education strategy is urgently needed that would start in primary school and build throughout high school and it would be provided in ways that young people want to learn, give them accurate information about and exposure to where future jobs would exist and the skills to craft and navigate multiple careers, uh, engage students, schools, industry and parents in in co-designing opportunities in and outside the classroom. Now, interestingly, they name seven job clusters, pointing out that three have more future than the others. Now, the first four are the generators, the artisans, the coordinators and the designers. But the three with the brightest futures are the informers, the carers and the technologists. Now, how does this feed into this discussion from a vet perspective? Uh, I'll start with you, John, and then I'll, I'll go around the panel. Yes, look, um, you know, I'm, of course, familiar with the Australian Foundation for Young Australians' work, and um, I, I give them 10 out of 10 for initiative and creativity, so thinking about the issues, but 5 out of 10 for actual execution. Um, they have, at the end of their report, a very naive uh, conception of what they call building in the importance of 21st century skills. And they have a very uh, weak appreciation of the importance of what emerging domains of expertise are. Their categories are, um, that's why I gave them 10 out of 10 for initiative, but 5 out of 10 for execution. These are absolutely chaotic categories if you look at how people flow through the labour market. 
their, their work is novel. You know, it builds on the burning glass um, job vacancy data. Um, it is basically a work of text analytics that is looking for commonality in terms. Um, there are two problems with that. Uh, job vacancy data is very incomplete. It's not a random sample. Uh, and secondly, um, because there is affinity between words and the use of text analytics doesn't necessarily mean that you're capturing a substantive labour market flow. And so uh, with the New South Wales government, I've done um, alternative work around clustering where we use longitudinal data from the Australia at Work data set, which tracked 8,000 workers over seven years, and HILDA, which has tracked around 15,000 workers over about 20 years. And that's a better data set because you can actually look at how people move. And when you do that, we've come up with around 42 clusters and that they, are, they have more coherence in terms of what's viable. So just to take one of the AYF categories, the artisans, you know, there's a big difference between a, um, uh, a chef and a um, carpenter, but they're all clustered together. Now, that's, that kind of makes... Uh, that's very close to the old um, ANSCO classification of trades worker. I think if we're looking at clusters, we've got to look at both what are the potential commonalities in terms of the content of skill as provided by text in job vacancies, but we've also got to look at the reality of flows. What is the actual substantive affinity between jobs as evidenced in how people move between jobs? So that's a long way of answering the question, but I, I'd simply return to my answer uh, uh, AFY, you know, good start, but poor execution. But that's what you expect in this space. This is hard work. You know, mm. there, there isn't a, a mature literature in this stuff, and, and they, they made a great contribution in kicking off the debate. I think it's uh, important, though, that we take the ideas further. David, your thoughts? Um, I won't. I won't score these guys, but <laughs> I do. Well, I do like that work. Um, the I, I concur with the informers, technologists um, ha having the, the brightest brightest futures um, and and I guess the example I gave to the built environment auditor are informers and technologists in in a combined package the um, I suppose a quick comment on the time frame yes this stuff takes a long time we've been pushing this for three years and have been knocked back on an annual basis but that doesn't stop us because you know let's learn from the Kiwis we've got another four years to go um, <laughs> the the the, this, the John made a comment um, about the the number of players in in this game, and and that is a, a you know it's a challenge. You're you're trying you're trying to push and manage a change process that has has a lot of um, embedded embedded um, thinking and uh, and I guess vested interests in it. So when we when we push put forward the built environment auditor. We're asked for longitudinal work on enrolment history, what, why are new qualifications needed, where are the jobs? And of course, none of that data is, is available and we're, we're really speculating um, speculating and, and asking the government to take a, take a, a calculated risk here, which, which when driven through the plethora of committee structures is, is quicksand very, very quickly. Um, the uh, the piece that we we continually push, and this is why we call uh, talk about the built environment, is the skill sets and clusters and movements of people, the ability of people 
um, happens within the broader picture of, of the built environment. So carpenters become leading hands, become foremen, become developers, but and, and work across that sector. They don't jump, on John's example, they don't go from a carpenter to a chef and back and forth. There are a set pattern, or not a set pattern, there are patterns around those clusters of skills. Um, and, and so this is why we believe our, um, the the VET system needs to actually recognise that this the, what are called cross-sector skills are actually probably better better considered as cross-value chain, um, industry value chain skills, not not ubiquitous across the entire entire economy. They become um, bland to the point of useless. So um, yes, I, I like I like the new thinking. Um, like I said, I'm not going to score the uh, foundation for young Australians, but but new thinking and and a more ballsy approach around recognising the future is I is I think the challenge that we all um, need to face up to. Thank you, David. Um, there is no shortage of interesting ideas hearing from what's been going on overseas, and yet we haven't made this fundamental change in Australia yet, and. Is it because vet reviews tend to be quite conservative here and, and tinker around the edges rather than overhauling the whole system? Because I just note uh, the pilot digital skills organisation is pretty vocal about this right now, advocating for more unaccredited training to meet digital skills needs in a timely manner. What are our prospects? Uh, uh, is it going to be glacial? Uh, have we got the wherewithal and appetite for really transformative change? Simon? Uh, well, first of all, I'd say I think David would be best placed to answer that question because he's inside the, the current bubble and, and, and the way the system works today. But I do know that there are plenty of conversations going on about how you might reform the development system of qualifications. And we've done a little bit of work to assist policymakers around the, a conceptual idea of incorporating what we call unaccredited training in those sorts of areas where it is highly unlikely despite any improvements you'll have a national training system able to keep pace with something that's clearly accelerating uh, faster and faster as we go so i think with the appropriate quality assurance and um, that those frameworks clearly understood we think there is a role for recognizing good quality training that may sit outside the formal national training system. David, your, your reaction to this, uh, your prospects for the future of, of these changes being embraced? Well, I think overhauling a whole system when a system's in process is um, pretty tricky. Um, you know, we have, have many hundreds of thousands of students in, in process at any one time, and every time we put a new qualification up, transition becomes difficult, um, so on and so forth. And I think there's there's a distinct difference between um, entry-level preparation for entry-level um, work versus those in the workforce and how they transition through through the workforce. Um, absolutely, there's um, a role for shorter, sharper training sets. Um, but I guess all of those, all of us on the call, know that issues such as funding immediately put that into into uh, sticky sticky ground. Uh, well, digital skills, certainly in the property services sector, are highly contextual. As um, John spoke earlier about data scientists, data analytics, in a in a property setting, yes, there there is a skill set that's 
that is possibly akin with with work that's done by financial analysts, but it's contextualised to to the um, to the built environment. So so these putting pushing a pushing a a barrow without context around it and without without some grounding is um, you know I think as you said, Steve, lots of great ideas, but but um, kind of gets John's 5 out of 10 for implementation. <laughs> uh, before I turn to John <laughs> to bring us home with some closing comments, David, if you were given control of the vet sector today, what would you be prioritising to work on first and, and what would you be expecting of, of stakeholders? I would really like to see a lot more uh, leadership around and, and creating a better collective vision around what it is we're actually trying to do. That's not just moving deck chairs around. Thank you, David. Sorry, short answer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I would like to, I would like some more leadership. Yeah. <laughs> yes, John. Can you can you bring us home with some closing thoughts on this and what you would be doing if you were given the uh, the reins? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think um, David's raised some some really important points and. And just to finish up, look, there is a, a major choice opening up. Google has gone public. It said it's going to create a, a qualification in its core skill set, which people can get in six months, and they're going to treat that as the equivalent of a degree. So the IT firms are positioning themselves pretty aggressively to recast the education landscape. So the vocational education system has to think creatively about how it responds to this. And I think uh, David's last point there is the critical one. Where is the collective leadership on this? In, in the current VET system, we've basically got the training package club. And the training package club is very happy with the way things are and it's basically, you know, time's passing them by. So if, if I was to say, what, what should we be doing next? What are the key issues? I, I think we've really got to put the issue of quality back at the centre of the vocational education training system. And quality isn't something that you write into a quality framework. Quality is embedded in people who trust each other and the skills they're imparting. Absolutely integral to that have got to be educators who are respected and resourced, who have the capacity to develop curriculum and pedagogies. These are ideas that have been driven out of the Australian vocational education system since the embrace of competency-based training, we've got a long way to go before we build up that capability. Secondly, David's point is also the critical one. Where is the collective vision? Where are the employers? Where are the people who have these emerging domains of expertise getting um, a forum? And at the moment, we don't have the sites where we can get these people together. Now, Australia's been in this, this situation before, you know, in the late uh, in the 1890s, we, there was a huge economic crisis, right? At that time, the apprenticeship system was on the verge of collapse. In the US, their apprenticeship system did collapse. It never really recovered. In Australia, we developed quite novel ways of responding. We created publicly funded technical education and we created the award system, which created coherence for both developing underpinning knowledge and coherent structures in the labour market. Australia's in the past shown it's got the capacity to build this kind of collective vision. I think it can do so again, but we're going to have to move beyond the training package club vision. And if we withdraw we that bigger vision, I'm very optimistic about the future. John, David, Simon, thank you for your insights and the perspective you've brought to this. 
Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.